This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Thank you, Craig. Fabulous. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. And while the headline here is a little bit of clickbait with friend versus foe, I think this topic today is going to be uh, great. And even just looking at the conversation that was stimulated on LinkedIn from the post earlier this week, just asking questions like, what is a site anyway nowadays, um, I think is a really, is is kind of an interesting open-ended question. But for today's conversation, I'm looking to set this up a bit that, you know, we have in today's decentralized universe a lot of different archetypes for what is a DCT. And for those that are regularly with us, you may know that we include a lot of different archetypes in our conversations. They may be hybrid. They could be hybrid in lots of different ways. They could be fully decentralized using a, um, a remote or centralized investigator model. Um, but there's certainly today quite a lot of different manifestations of decentralized out there in the ecosystem. And so for today's conversation, uh, we've got some leaders from different organizations that are approaching these in different ways. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how folks are seeing one another today and where there may be some great opportunities for collaboration. On uh, on LinkedIn, part of my uh, original post shared, Amir, how when we did that first remote trial at Pfizer 100 years ago, when I was at the DIA annual meeting a short time after we announced it, I definitely felt like there were some investigators I was passing in the hallway that were kind of looking at me like I was trying to do something that was going to was going to put them under that I had it in for them that that this approach was somehow going to be just a net negative for them but I feel like coming out of the pandemic and all the other work that sites have been doing in this space in recent years I'm hoping there's much less of that sense today Amir, any other perspective or thoughts from you as we set up today's conversation? Um, no, I think basically, I think for those of us who are at the DTRA meeting, we spent quite a bit of time on the, our discussions of the roles of sites going forward in, in the context of decentralized trials. And I think it'd be great to um, sort of amplify that today. Um, maybe we can ask our guests to introduce themselves. I've obviously known uh, Laurie and Andrea for a very long time, but uh, love to make sure that we introduce them for the audience. Absolutely. So for those of you that have been with us before, you know, each week we have different topics related to decentralized trials with different friends from the 
clinical research community joining us to lend their experience and expertise. If you are new to our community and to this club, be sure to click Decentralized Trials at the top left of your uh, phone screen. You can follow the club. You'll be notified, hopefully, about upcoming things that are going on, but you'll also be able to replay past episodes. And our gatherings have been recorded and are available for replay there, I think going all the way back to December. So there's a lot of great content there. For today's conversation, I am thrilled to welcome Lori and Andrea and Sam to uh, to Clubhouse. Lori, maybe we could get started with you, if you don't mind coming off mute, introducing yourself for the audience. And why are you here to talk about DCT today? <laughs> so, hi, everyone. This is Lori Wright. I'm one of the co-founders and the current um, CEO, president and CEO of Evolution Research Group. Um, so... You know, Craig, that's a great, great question. I'm here today because I'm intrigued by, um, you know, what all of your clickbait, <laughs> um, you know, what what do people think of um, traditional sites as, um, you know, there are so many different types of research sites out there and there's so many different types of DCT companies or companies offering services that are described as decentralized clinical trial services. So I'm always here to learn more. I think I mentioned to you earlier, Craig, I've been in the industry for more years than I care to admit my entire career. And um, I think this is one of the most interesting times uh, to be in this industry. So I'm really here to learn more. I, I can't wait to learn more about um, what Samantha's done. I, Samantha, Samantha, I did read quite a bit about your organization. So I'm, I'm eager to learn more and then, you know, see how we might be able to collaborate in a more um, um you know, in a stronger sense, as opposed to just a lot of talk. And I'd like to get some reality around this. You know, how is it really working um, between sites and, and some of the organizations? We're working with tons of people. So I'm, I'm always looking to collaborate, really. Um, and then Andrea is with me. Andrea is my chief operating officer. She runs all of our operations. So Andrea, maybe you just want to introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Andrea Chastain, as Lori said, the chief operating officer for Evolution Research Group. Have been in the industry for more than 20 years and really grew up on the site side um, and knew um, Dr. Kalali from my first experience down at a um, privately owned site in Atlanta, Georgia, but have grown up through a network of sites and joined Delore in 2013 ahead of ERG for, uh, forming to help establish the operational infrastructure. Um, but like Lori, I mean, I find this topic fascinating. I think if you ask 100 different people, you'll get 100 different answers about what decentralized trials mean and what it changes to the framework of how we do um, clinical research today. But I think more than anything, it's, it's exciting to look at the opportunity to provide greater access to study participants to um, being included in the clinical trials. So looking forward to this discussion today. Andrea, if there are folks in the audience that are not familiar with ERG, with Evolution Research Group, can you give us a snapshot of what um, what the group encompasses? What are the tools and solutions that ERG brings to the research space today? Sure. So ERG is a, um, a site solutions organization, which has three companies under our umbrella. Um, the company that I'm responsible for is the um, Evolution Research Group site organization, which is in, involves 20 sites across the United States. We we're born out of psychiatry, um, so we have another sites that do inpatient and outpatient psychiatry, um, but also grew into um, many avenues of CNS research, inclusive of Alzheimer's research, Parkinson, post-operative pain, and we have a large ClinFarm unit in Miami. 
Um, and through that, you know, we've done created an infrastructure that really supports our research sites and making them stronger at what they do. Um, we have a integrated central recruitment arm that supports our sites um, in developing and with outreach across the organization, inclusive quality assurance as well. Um, and we have some unique partnerships within the community that I think would be interesting to talk about as we talk about these decentralized trials, where we partner with large health organizations to get access to their patient populations to have research as an option. Um, but I'll bounce back to Lori and let her maybe talk about the two other companies under our umbrella. Yeah, so um, so thanks, Andrea. So I, I would describe ERG really as a, you know, a, 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 I don't know how you describe it, clinical development services organization, but we were founded on the site principle. So as Andrea said, we have, you know, 20 sites, 400 beds. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of what we do is is highly specialized and um, you know, um, about 70% of our work is uh, has some inpatient component to it. About 60% is inpatient and another 10 or 20% is later stage um, inpatient trials where, where patients need to be confined um, in a very controlled environment, um, requiring close monitoring, dietary restrictions, and those types of things. However, on the outpatient side, um, that's where we're seeing more of a movement towards um, you know, what I would describe as DCTs, although I'm not sure that I'm using the term um, properly. Uh, we also, <clears throat> everything that we've done, the whole way we built this company was based on sponsor demand. So there's a lot going on in the market, but, but as the CEO, I can only run the company and build the company based upon what our clients are asking for, right? So that's, that's, that's how ERG has grown. And so the more, that, the more early phase work that we did, the more demand there was for us to provide some backend services. Um, so last year we merged with Lotus Clinical Research, which is a small specialized um, CRO with you know data management, monitoring, project management, um, uh, biostats. Um, so we offer that to our our clients, and then um, we also brought CNS Ratings, Rater Training and Surveillance Company under our umbrella um, about six months ago. Um, so yeah, so so those are all the pieces, and as Andrea mentioned, that we it's like we have a little mini uh, patient recruitment company in the in the middle of it all. But I I would say that what we did just to go back, Craig, to your you know traditional site terminology is taken sort of the traditional sites and um, that you know struggle to compete now um, in in this ecosystem and um, strip them of all the administrative responsibilities that they have so they could just focus on the clinical aspects and help them to um, give them the technology and the resources to be able to continue to 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 prosper um, in this environment. Um, so Thanks. I think we're a little non-traditional now. So I'll stop there. Well, th this is perfect, though. It's great to have you uh, you both here. Sam, when, when you helped to set up this topic, we had said uh, it would be great to balance the perspective of, uh, of a nimble, um, a fully remote site with, uh, with a site model that has been here for years and is kind of a staple and to kind of see how are both of these evolving. And so I think Lori did a great setup and Andrea the, hinting at some of the evolution that the group has had to make during the pandemic that I know we're gonna come back to. But Sam, uh, why don't you come off of mute and introduce yourself and what it is you do for the, uh, for the audience. Thanks, Craig. Hi, I'm Sam. I'm one of the co-founders at Lightship. And at Lightship, we're a virtual first service provider where 
we work to create patient choice and access to clinical trials, whether that is um, sort of doing at-home visits, near-home visits, in-clinic visits, telemedicine visits. Um, we really work to meet the needs of the protocol and the, the patients that are taking part in our studies. And um, I really thought this topic was uh, a good one because it, it comes up a lot, I think, every time whether we're talking to sponsors or different partners or just in the, you know, the industry at large around how, how do we think about virtual sites and traditional sites? How can they work together, whether it's collaborating um, to run a hybrid study or thinking about, um, you know, running side by side where you may have a fully virtual site in a study as well as traditional brick and mortar. So I think there's um, a lot to talk about on this topic. I, and in terms of my background that I think is is a helpful perspective is that I did spend the first half of my career so far uh, working at an academic center where we did, you know, very traditional bread and butter clinical trial research <clears throat> and then have spent the last, what's creeping into 10 years, um, really working in this decentralized clinical trial space. So I'm really glad to be here with everyone and talk about this. And Sam, for your work at Lightship, where you're offering that um, centralized remote site model, are there certain therapeutic areas where uh, where you're particularly active today? Yeah, I would say broadly across the neurology, psychiatry, dermatology, um, cardiovascular, starting to think about also moving in and doing some studies in oncology. Those are um, really more focused on a, a hybrid offering in supporting patients. And the way we do like to think about it at Lightship is that we're a little bit agnostic to therapy areas. It's really about looking at each study and how can we really support patient choice and access and the protocol and getting the study done. Fabulous. Um, Sam, one last question, then I'd love to hear uh What's uh, what? What questions are swirling in Amir's mind as we set up this conversation? Are most of the trials at Lightship today? I don't know if you're able to say. Are they? Do they tend to be hybrid in that there is a Lightship uh, virtual site running alongside of um, brick and mortar sites for a particular trial, uh, as compared to a study that is entirely online? Yeah, it's been a mix. So I'd say it's about a sort of 50-50 between fully virtual studies where everything um, is done either at home with the patient or through telemedicine, as well as the the way you just mentioned where we're a virtual site and a larger study um, where we're side by side with the traditional approaches. Thanks so much. Well, Amir, I, I think we've got some nice opening um, opening understanding of where everybody is coming from today. I've got a lot of questions. I know in my mind, even just from the conversations on LinkedIn, Amir, what's um, what's jumping to your mind as uh, as you're hearing where everyone's coming from? Um, you know, uh, one thing I'll start by saying is I think ERG was one of the first site groups that joined DTRA and understood really that, you know, they as a service organization need to be part of the solution that's really patient-centered. And uh, I know, you know, we had a call with the leadership at ERG and it was really interesting hearing about 
how they were viewing the role of you know site organizations you know in the ecosystem so i don't know if laurie or uh, andrea want to talk a little bit more about that i mean we talked to your cto and some of your board members and really it was very interesting to, to me to see how a learning organization really learns to evolve you know as as the ecosystem is evolving versus kind of have their head in the sand thinking you know i just want to do the things i've always done the way i've done them right yeah. So yes, we absolutely have had to evolve. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've made, I think you discussed this on that call that I missed um, most of it, investments in, in the infrastructure. Um, and, and really those investments, although some people in the industry thought I was crazy uh, for spending some of the money that we spent, but, but that really paid off um, during COVID, right, during the pandemic. Um, and so we were happy that we made these investments in our technology platform. And, and just, you know, to give one example, um, when everything went dark, um, you know, we had a major problem with monitoring. Our studies were continuing um, on. We had to continue all our, our the studies that were in maintenance. Some studies even continued to enroll. Um, we had um, uh, several Alzheimer's studies as an example where the, the patients wanted to come in. Um, and the sponsors kept going. So, um, you know, we had to come up with ways to to adjust. Um, but but monitoring became a real problem for for us as as it did for many sponsors and CROs. As no one was really prepared for that. So we had to build our own remote monitoring platform. Um, and so some of our sponsors and our CROs used our our technology um, to log into a, a platform, um, where we could upload our source docs and, and they could do their monitoring visits right there. And it, it got a little out of control because, you know, monitors were just contacting investigators and contacting coordinators and one, there were no visits really scheduled. So we said, this, this isn't going to work. I mean, it was, it was out of control. So, um, you know, our, our head of quality, Andrea, and then, um, our, our head of IT, uh, got together and, and prepared, you know, so basically the monitor sent us a monitoring a letter, you know, which visits they wanted to do, what days they wanted to do it. They were uh, given a password, a login and a password, and they were able to come in and they had uh, times that they could have the coordinator on the phone, have the investigator on the phone. So, you know, we realized a couple of years ago that, you know, we really need to be prepared as for ourselves. Um, and for our sponsors. And so there, there, you know, I know there's been a lot of movement in that space, but, but that's what we had to do. Um, you know, we, we have mobile clinical units. We have a mobile app that I'm not going to talk too much about because it's, it's pre-launch. Um, and, you know, so, so we really had to do remote, remote uh, memory screens. We just had to figure it out. And so, so you're right, Amir. I mean, I was very interested um, in, in joining this um, from the beginning because I think there's so much we can learn. And really, as, as an organization, we are, as Andrea mentioned, anything that can help bring research to patients. Um, and although we do a ton of inpatient work, you know, many of those studies even have a couple of outpatient visits. So are there ways, are there people we can recommend that we can collaborate with uh, to do some of those, you know, those last two final outpatient visits remotely, anything that we can do to collaborate with other companies? It, it, I, we don't feel threatened, but I do understand, um, to Craig's point, at the IA several years ago in Amir, to your point um, about, you know, joining this up. And I, I did speak to a lot of sites, Samira, that were like, what is, what is he doing now? You know, they're going to take money out of our mouths. It's like, look, this is coming, guys, and we have to do something about it. So I don't know if that answers your question, Amira, but um, like Andrea said, we want to learn what else is out there, what else we can, we don't, 
we don't need to keep investing in this, right? If there's other technologies and other ways that we can collaborate with other groups out there, I would much rather do that and stick to what we do best. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And just to follow up, are you finding that, you know, by using, using new technology, there's a site organization, you're actually able to have a bigger reach in terms of seeing patients that are not geographically near your sites? Definitely. Yes, for sure. And, um, and so some of the work we do, because it's early phase and there's smaller numbers of sites, um, you know, phase two proof of concept or something. Sometimes the whole study is within just our ERG network. And so we, we have to find ways um, to, to support ourselves, you know, or to offer these things to sponsors. So, so yes, I mean, we do, um, you know, we, we are in some diverse areas, which has been fantastic. Um, we did some of the vaccine work in, in our sites, um, you know, enrolled to diverse population. That's, that's the biggest challenge, Amir, is, um, you know, getting into to, to areas where we can reach a, a diverse population. We've always, we've traditionally had our own transportation vehicles and specialists that could go out and, and bring patients in for long confinement stays from, you know, cities that are three hours away. We've always done that, but then you struggle with the follow-up visits, as I said before. So, yes, you know, anything that uh, we've been able to do to make it easier on the patient. But again, we, we're always driven by the sponsors and, and we have not seen. So, so Sam, I'm really interested. You said psychiatry and neurology, and I'm curious as to, to what you've done, because we haven't seen fully virtual, like anybody coming to us with a lot of virtual um, visits in, in those two areas. So I, I would love to learn more about that. Maybe not today, but another time we could follow up because that would be fantastic for us to understand um, in with those patients, what's been happening? Because I'm I'm unaware of that unless Andrea knows something. Sam, do you want to share a bit in terms of uh, the types of studies that you're seeing that may make a nice fit for the Lightship model today? Sure. So when we think about the types of studies that can, I would say, trend towards this model, definitely phase two, phase three outpatient studies and really thinking about when we're looking at a protocol and the procedures, which which things can be done at home, which ones can be done virtually, what we, you know, which things should actually be done in clinic medically or because it, it is an in-person type of visit where we need to do that with them. Um, how do we set that up for each study visit? And then what we really start to look at, I think in this space, is looking at once we, you know, assure patient safety, data integrity, is starting to look at the endpoints and how they're collected. And that is, I think, the biggest piece in terms of figuring out, is this the type of trial that will work to do in a decentralized way? So oftentimes when we're looking at endpoints that, you know, we as regulators need to make sure we're adhering to the way that they've been set up to be done to analyze the study, um, and not, you know, disrupting anything there. So as we're looking at that, and things that are easy to sort of say make sense are, you know, doing a blood draw and that's your end point. That's pretty um, objective in terms of if we're doing that and, you know, drawing blood at home or drawing blood in the clinic, um, it doesn't change the, the outcome of that lab result. And when we think about <clears throat> imaging, it's pretty similar around that, you know, that if that's being overread or read internally, you can do that in a decentralized way. And 
things like that are pretty easy to say. That makes a lot of sense um, to do at home, and that won't change the way the study data is being collected. But when we start to look at, you know, different assessments, so I think psychology and neurology tend to be a good example of this, where um, you may be doing assessments traditionally in clinic with a patient face-to-face, and then as you get into the detail of how those assessments are being done, it's really figuring out, could a, could a nurse do that at home? Could a central rater do that via telemedicine with a patient? And, and really continue that endpoint parity across the study and the way it's being conducted. Um, so Lori was very interested to kind of hear that you, you're getting some centralized rating um, work set up as well. So that would definitely be a nice thing to talk about afterwards and collaborate uh, on too. You know, it's this theme that we are able to centralize functions that really makes the idea of a decentralized trial work. We've centralized IRBs and labs and imaging and EKG reads for years, centralizing and being able to provide that oversight for rater assessment feels like it's it's yet another key enabler for us to be able to distribute uh, enrollment and enable remote participation in these trials. So it's it's great to hear that as a cornerstone. Amir, is that kind of becoming the norm in your opinion? So uh, I had two comments really around what Laurie asked too. Um, one was that I, mean, I think in general, we, I, think I don't think about any particular indication or area being particularly suited. The way I think about it is we have a set of technologies that can be, some of which work integrated to most trials. So I just see sort of decentralized technologies as being utilized even when maybe most of the trial is, you know, within a site in the physical world. Um, the other thing I want to mention to Laurie, you, you were curious about, you know, work being done within kind of, let's say, psychiatry depression so i think the biggest trials that have been going on that you're probably aware of is beringer ingelheim is actually running head-to-head sort of site uh, uh very large programs and also a um, sort of program through science 37 uh, i did chair a meeting just two weeks ago where for the first time we kind of discussed what was happening with those trials um, they're still ongoing so there's no results and um, i think the one one could comment that there is challenges like for all approaches right at the moment uh so i think you know nothing's fixing everything totally and we have to work on how to do better on both on the you know physical site front and on the virtual front so i think there's a lot of um, studies that are being conducted right now which should help us understand more but they're all challenged because they're all happening during COVID. so even the virtual trials clearly had an impact uh because of COVID. Uh, so that's something I'm looking forward to seeing more data and sort of more experience from people around that, just to answer your specific question, Laurie. Um, and I know that, and I don't know if, Andrea, do you want to jump in and just talk a little bit more about what Laurie said about the kind of evolution you've seen within ERG from a, like an operational point of view? You know, how much of a headache has it been for you trying to make that evolution happen? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're fortunate to have a leadership, you know, led by Laurie, where we've been, it's been pre- preach to us that you have to be agile in order to thrive and grow. Um, so, you know, I can say the philosophy from the top down has been to lean into that agility. Um, and there's nothing like a pandemic to force that to happen. Um, so, I mean, I think our sites in general have become very adept at using technology to leverage um, access and, and treating patients. Um, you know, we we've, we did it at the time of the pandemic where we 
pivoted to doing where patients were comfortable remote pre-screens in order to access and have telemedicine with patients to bring them in. Um, Lori mentioned doing the remote monitoring. And I think that, you know, when you talk about the headaches that came to the sites, and I think most traditional sites probably experience this over time is, you know, you have the platform, but then there's the physical um, aspect of scanning and uploading, which is just, you know, there is a time um, um, aspect where then it's pulling away from being able to see patients. Um, so, you know, the next evolution for us is transitioning over to eSource to pivot that. So, you know, there's a platform there already that can be readily access accessible. Um, and I think for us is that really the next step as we go, and I, I keep, you know, kind of flirting with this in the conversation that we're having now is, you know, really leveraging technology to expand our reach out to patients and, and you know, how can we become more mobile to meet that need that our sponsors are asking of us to increase diversification and being more inclusive in our trials? And, you know, I really think that that's the next step for us. Um, and, you know, to your point, um, um, Dr. Collies, you know, what kind of pain is that going to create for oper operationalizing that? And it's, it's just resources, right? And so how do you have the staffing to be able to go out and, and, get that access to the patients and a more mobile capability and have it to be resources that you rely on. And I do think that's where this partnership could look at to some of these decentralized organizations where you can have them, you know, power up and work with your traditional sites, which can help, help increase that bandwidth. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities here um, and you just have to be smart in each step and how you're training and building that confidence with your investigators that you're going to do this in a high quality way. I want to open things up in a minute, but Sam, I'm curious from what you're hearing with Lori and Andrea, how do you view collaboration today between um, models like Lightship and uh, nimble uh, site and site networks like you're hearing with ERG? Yeah, I think that collaboration piece is, is probably the, the most important and key piece for everyone working together. Just just like I think Lori and Andrea have, have said a few times across this, it's really about creating more access for patients. So particularly when we're, you know, working on studies which are, are hybrid and, you know, that does end up being, I think, the bulk of studies because we do just have those components where we need to see patients in person oftentimes. So, you know, companies like Lightship and being able to work with companies like ERG to collaborate so that, you know, if it's their sites, their investigators, their, you know, coordinators that we're working with for those in-person visits, and then we're able to really continue to increase the access by using these de decentralized approaches that we, you know, really have our expertise and bring um, together with the sites that we're collaborating with, I think has really been that key piece in building a lot of also just trust. Um, just like you mentioned, I think, you know, a lot has shifted with the pandemic, but particularly in the, the earlier years of this industry, there there were a lot of, you know, sites and investigators and coordinators that, that were worried about not only um, just so, you know, how does this impact my budget when I'm working on a clinical trial? But also, I think even, you know, does this, you know, does this mean my job won't exist anymore if we're shifting to this new way of doing things? 
And, and I think that's been the piece around, you know, how do we work together in a really great way with decentralized trials and clinical sites to really increase that trust, that collaboration, that education that we do. We do need, you know, we still need all the doctors, all the site staff, all the study coordinators working together to really run these clinical trials and, and try and offer them to as many patients as we can who need them. Well said. Amir, so, sorry, um, I think, uh, could you please uh, reset the room for us? And I know we have some interesting questions in the chat and lots of real experts in the audience. So we'll open up. But do you want to reset before we do this? Absolutely. It's so new having a chat button here. Uh, it's one other thing to monitor. But uh, certainly if folks uh, wanted to add questions to the chat, you're more than welcome to. But now is a great time to also use the little hand raising icon on the lower right. You're in the Decentralized Trials Club. You, we do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific. We cover a range of topics related to decentralized trials. Those topics come from you, our friends in the audience. And so if you have topics that you'd like to see us include and develop, please reach out to Amir and myself and we'll work to include those in the queue. That's why we're having the conversation we are today. I'm also thrilled that we have uh, good friends that are able to join us as experts in these areas and co-host with us. Today's topic is this relationship between the uh, traditional brick and mortar site, which as we're hearing with Lori and Andrea itself has done some radical evolution in the last, uh, in the last couple of years. And how does that relate against the um, these uh, innovative, uh, fully remote, fully online uh, research sites? Uh, so uh, why don't we, Amir, keep uh, getting some folks up here on the stage, but we have on the stage here, Jane, welcome back. Jane, why don't you come off mute, introduce yourself, share your question and thought perspective today. Thanks so much. My name's Jane Miles. I work at one of those DCT tech and services companies. Um, I think we're all a little bit different. So I have a question to Lori and Andrea, but Samantha, you're welcome to chime in, of course. Um, what was the biggest surprise or challenge you faced early on, aside from the monitoring, remote monitoring challenges you experienced um, with the adoption of some of these decentralized assessments or technology solutions? Andrea, you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, I think any time that you um, layer over a technology solution into a trial, it's increasing additional vendors. And, you know, while you may have a company or a site that is managing those vendor relationships, still at a local level, you have the technology woes that come along with managing that relationship. So, you know, I think the biggest burden comes along in just the running and set up when there's tablets or um, devices that get involved and the, again, manpower that it takes at the local level for both internal adoption to that, but also external adoption with your um, study participants and the execution of it. So from my end, I think that would be it because we just, you know, over time and seeing how it's progressed and evolved, um, it's, you know, 10 years ago, it was probably much more burdensome than it is today um just because it took it took more time to adapt to that um but i think when you look at today 
you know, there's, there may be one trial that has 10 different vendors on it. And so you take that and imagine just doing one hour a week with each vendor and you're looking at layering in 10 hours. So it just takes manpower to be able to operationalize it. Lori, I don't know if you want to add anything. No, I think, does that answer your question, Jane? Yeah, it, it definitely does. And it's not, um, sadly, it's not surprising to me. I am very interested on that comment you made about patient adoption of these new approaches and how you have worked through those challenges with the patients. It's just training. I mean, at your initial visits, it's introducing the application, walking them through it. And then there's handholding when there's offsite, right? Because you're the de facto IT solution support when a patient's having a problem remotely with their device. So walking them through it. Um, you know, we, we did a um, large trial um, that was a vaccine trial that used ePro device that required daily monitoring of compliance with that ePro device. And that just becomes very cumbersome. So often the times it's a missed visit. So then you need to go back and, and ensure why it was a missed visit and, and follow up. Um, so again, it's just education and spending that hand on hand time with the patient to get them understanding of the device. Okay, last question, then I promise I'll let others in. <laughs> How, what, what's the relative proportion of the trials where you're seeing BYOD versus um, studied specific devices? Oh, that's a good question. And I don't know if I could give you a um, um, comprehensive answer without going back to my teams. I, I would say for the m most part at this point, it's it's leaning towards BIOD, um, bring your own device, um, but with the um, sponsor providing devices for those that may not have them. Um, I, I think is probably where it's it's weighted towards right now, but let me put a pen in it and look and, and, and query my team and I can follow up with an answer afterwards. Thank you very much. And this is Jane, I'm getting off stage. <laughs> always great voice here, Jane, and always great to have a new voice here as well. Shalon, you joined us last week and we're gonna keep you coming up here. I know we've added you to uh, demystifying oncology decentralized trials in a few weeks. Come on off mute, uh, introduce yourself if anyone didn't meet you last week and share your perspective on today's topic. Wonderful, thank you, Craig. Thank you, Amir, wonderful discussion. Uh, so I'm a medical oncologist. I've had the um, luxury of being involved in site-based research for 11 years and now thinking more about how to apply decentralized tools and decentralized technologies for cancer trials. I'm curious to what our guests think about the different incentives that drive different people. Um, there are two things that motivate people, pride and money. Uh, we've talked a lot about money and incentives and budgetary implications and how, how those are impacted. But when I think about clinical trials traditionally and specifically at traditional sites, a big motivation for people to be involved in clinical trials, if I'm talking about the principal investigators and the centers themselves, is to be able to brag about their participation in those trials. Um, what have your experiences been with uh, brick and mortar sites in terms of <clears throat> their acceptance for using decentralized tools that may be more patient-centric and maybe uh, more trial-centric and may actually make the trials more lean but it 
impacts their model of, of viewing things in terms of uh, meaningful participation in those trials, for example. So curious to whether you all have any anecdotes to share or any guiding principles that you work with. Um, just for anyone answers, can you uh, maybe explain a little bit when you said brag about it? What do you mean exactly so, by that? Well, why do academic centers participate in clinical trials? A lot of the PIs uh, go on clinical trials because they want to be on the publication. They want to be on the podium presenting the results. They want to be able to say that they're a site for that clinical trial and they're in an elite club of, of, um, of, of clinical services. Uh, in the oncology world, that's very true. Um, sure. And uh, certainly there are a lot of people who will primarily make the trials available for patient-centricity. I don't think that one precludes the other, but I've been in rooms where they maybe the, the, um, uh, the, the bragging potential of the principal mm -hmm. investigator is a slightly bigger motivation for them uh, than actually having the the trial open for their clinic and for their patients. Well, that's a that last point is a really interesting one, right? Because uh, Sam, I'm always curious how you perceive your model coexisting with academic investigators for whom um, standing on the podium and um, being listed as an author are just important for their career development goals, um, but maybe being in the nuts and bolts of enrollment and all the visits is a little less of a priority. Sam, do you see models where Lightship is amplifying or collaborating with, the, with academic researchers? Yes, so I think this is a really important piece and in particularly in, in different specialties and specialty areas where there are KOLs, whether they're academic centers or, you know, private centers that particularly our sponsors may want involved, not only, you know, thinking about them as investigators for sort of the bragging rights and the pride and the, you know, the bit around, you know, I'm really helping the research community and helping patients move forward. It's, it's been important, I think, to include them in the, you know, how are we running these studies, getting their insights ahead of time. I think the nice thing about this model is that it, you know, ultimately by creating more patient access, you know, those investigators overall may able may be able to then have the the opportunity to say, hey, we were able using this model to reach more people or more patients who would be traditionally underserved by, you know, our healthcare system or our academic center. So I do think there is a way as you're working um, with those investigators to figure out how it makes sense for them and what is going to really motivate them. And again, I think like I've said a few times and I think this just continues to echo through how we think about working together. It is about that, just building the collaboration, building the trust so that everybody in the ecosystem is, is really getting you know, the things that they need as we're working together. So let me broaden the conversation a little bit. I mean, Shalom, with your background in academia, you kind of focused on the academic kind of incentives. Um, I actually want to broaden this to actually all sites. So when you think about it, actually most private sites in the US, many of the PIs came from academia. 
Okay, and for many of them, I mean, they, they do have an interest in the disease area. And when we first started doing remote assessments, one of the things I asked my farmer friends was, let's think this through. So you think that we can just do remote assessments, right? So what are we leaving the sites with? Basically, recruitment machines and adverse event reporting machines. Is that something that your PI who really you know, knows the area well, there's a reason we pay them the money we do, that we're looking to their expertise in terms of diagnosis or you know, assessment, you know, is that what we wanna do? And interestingly, if you think about it, being involved in a clinical trial is an extremely good way to get a cohort of your physicians to actually understand your drug and be willing to prescribe it. So in fact, if you disengage from that, uh, community, you're literally disengaging from the very people that you want you to use your drug once it's approved. So I think life is complicated. And I think, you know, whether it's academics and their incentives about publication, or whether it's, you know, PIs in the private sector that actually take pride in the work they do. Uh, there's a lot of things we do that have consequences downstream that we may not really think about necessarily at the time in our rush to kind of use technology. So those are kind of things I think about when I think about how we evolve assessment, how we evolve, how we interact with clinicians who are actually prescribing at the end of the day. So that those are things I think about when you ask your question there. I, I agree 100%. Um, there's a little bit of walking on, on eggshells, I think, until everybody really realizes um, what the utility may be for their specific um, um, microcosm i guess um it'll be very different like i'm i'm already just sort of thinking on uh, neurology and psychiatry that was mentioned earlier in the in the session and how those implications and how telemedicine is um transforming those space like the impact in in those fields may be very different than um it would be in oncology where the oncologists relationship is is very different with their patients um but but i think the overall theme that i'm hearing is that there is broad acceptance of the fact that um we we need these incentives to to continue to align but i think someone said i think it was sam who said earlier that you know it's it, it's happening and and it's here and um and there is that recognition in in the industry that um that these tools are gonna stay great um, can we craig just address a couple of challenges very good questions in the challenge let's make sure we kind of touch on that a little bit there was a question from rodrigo garcia asking um how do you see clinical research sites and networks evolve in the next five to ten years so i guess laurie that you get paid the big bucks to be the vision apparently so uh, can you start with the answer? How do you see this evolving? Apart from you retiring at some point, but how? Just... Uh, yeah, that would be nice at some point. So, look, I think I think the evolution of Evolution Research Group is. Look, I think we just have to continue to um, adopt um, technologies, and and we have to look for ways. So, so again, and I don't want to be repetitive, but. From our perspective, like I understand the sponsor's perspective, there's there's financial challenges. I've seen a lot of um, information that you know decentralized trials shorten timelines, they reduce costs. Although I haven't seen any data around that yet, um, you know, it, it, 
our our goal is to is to serve our sponsors, right? So if there's anything that we can do, um, either within within our organization, investing in the ability to go out and um, and reach a larger audience and and meet the enrollment timelines. For example, like I said, mobile clinical units, which we'll be deploying at I want to say Luke knows um, maybe four states. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that we have to continue to do. I will say, you know, a little bit to to this Rodrigo's question as well as um, Sean before, you know, I, I'll give you just a quick example. Um, on the Alzheimer's side, um, I, I know I saw, I think even um, Sam, you had some um, a, a survey on your website during COVID that people didn't want to come to a site. And that makes perfect sense to me during a pandemic. But I will tell you that we had multiple sponsors and CROs contact us. They had engaged they were speaking with a nursing group that could go to the, to the, patient's home and they were willing to implement that midway through these studies. None of the patients wanted that. They wanted to come and, you know, and the caregivers wanted to bring them because, you know, you have to remember that these caregivers, you know, this is a little break for them. They get out of the house and there's a, there's a development of a relationship, like Amir said, with those physicians, they do care. As far as the investigators go, nobody complained about money. The, the bigger concern for us was liability. So we don't know these people. We're not going to interview these people. They're not going to be working under our own SOPs. You know, so so that was our PI's concern was more about the patient care. On the psychiatry side, I never had a site contact me and Andrea, correct me if I'm wrong, and say, we're not making any money right now because they won't let, they're only letting us screen and put one patient on the unit at a time. You know, this happened in psychiatry and in our inpatient studies, you know, because of whatever the 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 positivity rate was and that's it. what they said was this patient needs this study those are the kinds of calls we got so just to to Sean's point i wanted to make sure that our pis were very much they're very much in it for to get these drugs out because they've been doing this for so many years as, as amir said many of them are ex-academicians or ex-clinicians um so so i just wanted to make that point but as far as evolving i think we just have to keep finding new ways um, and, and, and another point is to have more capabilities within R1 buildings, right? So I think Sam made the point earlier, you know, to go out, you have to have a lab draw, you have to, you know, whatever you could do at the, at the home. But if we can have the surgeries done right at our unit, x-rays done right at our unit, the blood draws, everything is done in one location. I think that eases burden too. So for our inpatient work, I think the more we can add capabilities to our buildings, you know, the brick and mortar, we keep calling them. Um, I think that eases the patient burden as well. And, and in some, I know in some academic institutions, you're running to different buildings, you get your imaging over there, you get this over there. The more we can centralize that in our bricks and mortar until there are solutions outside of that, I think we have to continue to do those things. I don't, I don't know that that answers the question. No, Amir, it does, but... uh, absolutely. Could you just quickly also answer a question Fran uh, Ross had on the um, chat, which is what are your top three asks for sponsors and CROs from a site perspective? Where do you start? <laughs> <laughs> Your top three asks. Oi, Andrea. Um, well, we recently had to rescue a study um, where we had to deploy. So I guess this is kind of a decentralized service we're offering, deploying raiders out to sites. Um, I can't give out too much information due to confidentiality, but it's basically a pain study, but being done at ophthalmology sites and they, they didn't have the capabilities to do the ratings and these had to be done on site in the OR and we had to deploy people. So so some crazy things like that we've seen. But Andrew, what what have, what have been the top asks um, 
From sponsors uh, to us? Yeah. But the question in the chat is, no, what is the top three asks you would do to sponsors from a site perspective? Oh, we would do to sponsors. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What you would okay. ask them, like, what you would like to see from them. Oh, God. That's a tough one. But can, um, I, can I answer for you? I'll, I'll get you going. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go get me going. I'll pretend to be a site. Um, how about you listen? And how about you walk in our shoes and actually understand the implications of your protocol <laughs> and when the rubber hits the road? I'll start there. What do you think? Well, yeah, that's great. I mean, look, I we did have a lot of requests of sites when the pandemic first hit. So, so I hate to keep going back to this example, but there was an expectation we're going to stop screening, and and everybody on this call, I'm sure, knows that you know the screening is what keeps you going. Screening and randomizations is where you make your money, right? And so, not to be a financial person here, but so stop screening, no more randomizations. Just we want you to see. Uh, the patients that are in maintenance at some of our sites. It's again at our inpatient sites. It was a little different. Well, we we couldn't afford to keep our full staff on. We had to furlough, so we were doing you know weeks. But there, the expect now the monitors are coming to us. The sponsors are coming to us. They're asking more and more questions about what's happening during the pandemic. More conference calls. So while our resources were going down, the requests were going up. So Amir, you're absolutely right. Walk in our shoes. Um, and then, you know, we were telling them supplies are costing more. You know, there, there were a number of, of changes to our financial picture, but well, we're not going to give that to you, but we're going to look at bringing in all of these other vendors that are going to solve our problems for us. I said, well, are they working for free? So, you know, we're, we're, we're still running this. As of today, this is not a virtual trial. And um, so, so that would have been a little bit more understanding. But I have to say what, what I have noticed, um, Amir, is they are sponsors are coming to us we have a scientific leadership team that reviews all of our opportunities on mondays and wednesdays we are jam-packed every week and they're really asking how can we do this should we use this vendor should can we do this piece remotely they really are coming to us more and more now particularly smaller organizations but even the big giant guys they i think that's the one good thing that came out of COVID is that they are realizing that they need to come to folks like us. And I'm sure Velocity and Cinexcel and some of the other big, big groups to get the input. So when it hit two years ago, um, not so much. But now I think they've all learned a lesson and, and we have a lot of input. And, and just so everybody on this call knows, we're in favor of, of using um, technologies and things outside of, you know, we don't want to continue to invest in everything. So I don't know if that answers the question, Amir. No, that's, um, that's great. I appreciate that. And I think just before we go to our last speaker here, uh, I just want to address the last comments. Kevin and Richard are talking about central reads. Uh, we won't address it. We could have a whole session on this, quite frankly. I would say to Richie, actually, the, the jury is out. I don't believe all central reads will reduce variability in subjective. That's a subject for another time. But I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, whether central reads actually improve things or not. So to me, it's Ooh. an open question frankly but let's um Craig, Ooh, amir i like that one i'm i'm i maybe we have to add that to the uh to the cycle because yeah. i am i am all in on uh, yeah i don't, I don't want to open that kind of variability, variability. Uh, yeah. so let's so, save that one hey uh yeah. jeff welcome yeah. to uh the stage here on clubhouse introduce yourself share your question or perspective thanks craig jeff stein i own two dedicated research sites in fairfield county connecticut and have been a very early adopter of cloud-based solutions for uh, just about everything that we do. By the end of 2022, we'll be 100% paperless. 
uh, well, to the extent that we can possibly be that. And, and I jumped on in part because of a question that, uh, that Jane had posed earlier, but it also relates to what, you were, what Amir was just talking about. Um, I have for years invited sponsors to come on site to see how the technology I've adopted works. And only one has taken me up on that. My biggest concern is that sponsors, as they're evaluating the large technology platforms that are out there, the Science 37 or Metable, they're not understanding this, the technology that sites have already adopted. Now, when I went on to eSource about four years ago, I was a beta user for this company. This company now has over a thousand customers, site customers that are using its technology. So I'm not going to say it's ubiquitous, but it certainly has penetrated the market to a significant extent, and that's just one vendor. When sponsors start selecting vendors like Science37, they don't, I think, appreciate how that impacts sites who have already adopted their own technology solutions. So the biggest request that I have to sponsors and CROs is to spend some time learning about exactly how the technology works that sites are adopting. Uh, another example of my frustration was several years ago, I sat on a Transcelerate eSource uh, committee. Uh, we're, I think we were in the process of trying to develop an eSource readiness questionnaire. And every sponsor on that, that, in that group was talking about eSource as EMR. And I'm trying to explain to them that when sites are using that term, they mean something very, very different. I don't have EMR in my office. I do collect all of my data in an electronic source platform. So yeah. we, we were coming at this from very different places and it just leads to a misunderstanding and a lack of efficiency and potentially disruption in site operations if sponsors don't understand these kinds of things. I think, Jeff, it's a great point you're raising. We only have a minute here left, but what, what I think what, what, what we're, we've seen is this topic comes up quite a bit, and here in Clubhouse in another forum, there are a lot of different archetypes of a research site. We have dedicated research sites. We have large dedicated networks. We have individual practices. We have practices that are providing care and doing research on the side. We have academic health centers. Uh, that are doing lots of research coexisting with care. And part of that creates some of the challenge for research sponsors as they try to navigate individual solutions that some sites may be using because it is never going to be the case that the majority of my sites were all using something the same. I think what it really starts to speak to is the urgency to have sponsors focus on interoperability and minimum quality standards wherever possible and use that as a way to start to unlock the ability for sites to make investments in what fits their environment and ecosystem. Uh, we've had that conversation here in Clubhouse as it relates to e-consent and use of video as a starting place. I, I think those are just the beginning of where that field will head. Um, but I know we're also out of time and so maybe that's something we'll continue the conversation on LinkedIn and pick up again here on Clubhouse. Uh, because we are at the top of the hour. And I do want to thank Samantha Eels for kicking off this topic with us today, Sam from Lightship, and with uh, Lori and Andrea for joining us from ERG to share their experience, which is really exciting to hear. Uh, Jane, Shalon, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us uh, up here on stage. Amir, any other 
Final thoughts? Just to say with the enthusiasm and the number of people still want to come on stage, this is a topic that people are very interested in. Well, I'm sure we'll address again. So I'm very grateful to all the speakers. And uh, I think we'll be talking about these issues on an ongoing basis. Most definitely. Meanwhile, come on back next Friday. We will be talking about patient support in decentralized trials and how can we move towards more holistic models. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Sam, Laurie, Andrea, thank you again.